Welcome to Pop Culture Osmosis. My name is Kyle Dias. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our opening segment today is Favorite Recipe. Um, Ryan, I'll let you go first. What are you going to say for Favorite Recipe? And I, I don't know whether this is Favorite Recipe that we ourselves cook or that, you know, our parents cook or something like that. I guess it doesn't have to be a recipe you make, but you have to be familiar with it, I guess. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but I, either way, I'm going to go with... Um, Alton Brown's Thanksgiving turkey recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this. I first watched this on his Thanksgiving special on Food Network way back in, I think, like 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew at that time that is exactly how you should cook a turkey. And the first time I used it, I think was our junior year of college mm-hmm. when uh, I prepared that turkey um, in your apartment on 10th Street. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was such a disaster because uh, we accidentally brined the turkey in our only pot. And then... No, 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 no. I, so I made the brine in a pot. Oh, this, yes. is, this is my favorite part of this. Actually, my favorite <laughs> part of making this turkey was... Not, um, so I, we made the, the brine for the turkey overnight, mm-hmm. but we didn't have a container to put the turkey in. So Ariel had this like it was a cooler, like, it was like a thermal, like, like a collapsible this, like, cooler, like mesh, not mesh, but like like a soft, soft walled mm-hmm. cooler, right? Mm-hmm. So we just shoved the turkey in there, poured the brine on it, and like zipped it closed. <laughs> and obviously, we're never using that. Like bag again. <laughs> you can't just like but it's just, throw a bunch of beers in there after it's had like turkey brine all over it, raw yeah, turkey brine. <laughs> super gross. <laughs> but yeah. So, but anyway, then the pot that we used to make the brine, we apparently did not. It was our only pot, and apparently we did not uh, rinse it well enough before we used it to uh, cook the apples for an apple pie that my good friend Kimberly was making. And so the apples uh, tasted had a, a distinct turkey brine under flavor when she was finished. Yeah, uh, very. On Thanksgiving Day, we had to run out to a bodega somewhere and find some apples and, and get some more apples. And then I had to run back to my dorm and get my pot. Another pot, yeah. Because we tried washing that thing twice. And, and she was like, no, it still smells like vegetable broth. Out, yeah. <laughs> it was like these apples I just remember tasting it I was like wow this is really salty mm-hmm. meanwhile you know the turkey sloshing around in the collapsible cooler <laughs> but and it was remember, it was a very good turkey recipe I remember that it just smoked so much in your poor apartment mm-hmm. too it was not a good I, it was not a good uh, kitchen setup it was all the way in the back of the apartment with zero ventilation uh, yeah not exactly a place to open a window yeah here for the first time in my apartment now, I have an actual hood where like, not a hood, but like the vent above the stove actually goes outside somehow. Like in every single other place that I've lived, they just mount the microwave above the stove and then there's like a vent on the top of the microwave. And so like smoke just goes like, you know, up from the stove into the microwave and then out the top of the microwave. Yeah, <laughs> I never really understood how that was like how that did anything there's a filter in there that's apparently supposed to like filter out a lot of the you know solids and smoke and stuff but like no one ever knows that it's there and so no one ever cleans it and so it just gets clogged with stuff and then doesn't do its job very well 
Uh, and they don't, they don't work particularly well to begin with, but they work especially poorly if you never clean the filter, uh, which I'm pretty sure that no landlord has ever done in any place that I've ever lived. Oh, I bet not. Um, yeah, I don't understand the point of it at all, but uh, the whole apartment filled with smoke. Uh, but the the turkey did taste good. Um, so, good so, recipe. <laughs> I mean, and we've used it, well, I've used it for many Thanksgivings after that. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because I feel like the traditional Thanksgiving turkey is like kind of falling out of uh, popular favor among like foodies or like foodies now or it's like a, the cool thing to do is claim that like, you know, turkey's not even that good and especially not a Thanksgiving turkey and you should like deep fry it or you should make uh, something other like Cornish game hens or something. And this Thanksgiving, I, I was reminded that I, no, actually turkey is really delicious when it's like brined and, and cooked correctly. And uh, I think that recipe definitely does the trick. Keeps it nice and moist inside. It it really does. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great pick. Um, mine's gonna be for a dessert because I have a horrible sweet tooth, um, and basically just love anything that has lots of sugar and fat in it. Um, and it's a recipe from my childhood that's almost absurdly easy to make. It's like barely a recipe at all. Um, and I, I when I was thinking about this question originally, I was like, well, now I know how to cook and I make stuff all the time. So maybe I should choose something that I make now because it'll make me seem all impressive and stuff like that. And I should choose like, you know, a duck with roasted vegetables or something like that. But um, really, this recipe is was pretty much the only thing I could make as a kid. And it's delicious and it's been passed down in my family for a really long time. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's a Butterfinger um, cornflake bar. Ryan, do you remember? I, I think I've made these a couple times in your presence or at parties that we went to. Do you remember this recipe at all? Mm, I feel like I know you've mentioned it. I don't know if you ever made it. So, uh, it's, a, think. it's a recipe that my dad used to make all the time, and it was passed down to him by some great aunt or something who would make these whenever she went over to his house. But basically what you do is you get a uh, – it, it's kind of similar in construction to like a Rice Krispie treat. Um, you get some butterfinger, or, or I'm sorry, not butterfinger, butterscotch, uh, butterscotch uh, chips, like like from the like chocolate chips, but butterscotch. Um, oh, I do remember you making this now because I remember you had to find those chips until that's just like gooey butterscotch, uh, you know, liquid. Um, you mix in a ton of peanut butter. Uh, and then you mix in some cornflakes and kind of, you know, stir it around until they're all covered. And then you pour it into a, a baking pan and you put it in the refrigerator to set. Um, and what you get out are these like crunchy, salty, extremely sweet, uh, bars, uh, that have like a really nice peanut butter and butterscotch flavor. And, um, they're just absolutely the best thing on the planet. And they look horrible. They look horrendous. They're just like brown goo holding together. Uh, you know, a bunch of cornflakes, and they're not exactly the most appetizing thing. Like when you plate it, no one's like, "Ooh, ah, nicely done." But they are uh, pretty much the most delicious thing on the planet. And again, uh, y- even if you have absolutely no cooking skills whatsoever, you can make them in about ten minutes of actual work, plus a you know an hour or so for them to set in the fridge and and cool down to to harden. Um, so they they really are ridiculously easy. Uh, to make so i think that's probably my pick because it tastes like childhood and tastes delicious and was the only only dessert i knew how to make for a very long time so there's some butterscotch butterscotch peanut butter cornflake bars 
Uh, and the only recipe I have for it is a scanned PDF of a handwritten piece of paper handed down by somebody sometime. So maybe I'll uh, throw that up online somewhere. Cool. So basically, our Doctor Who episode has been a very long time coming. I think it's been on our Google Doc for podcast topics since uh, pretty much since since the beginning. I would say, uh, probably mm-hmm. because I mean, um, I wouldn't say I. When did I start watching Doctor Who? I mean, I didn't start when the reboot started, but probably a season. Two seasons after that, maybe? So, like, 2007-ish? 2008? Oh, no. No, I did watch it after that. But I know I started before uh, Smith took over. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And basically, like, the entire... The reason we have never talked about Doctor Who pretty much ever is because I've been in a continual state of catching up throughout this entire process. When did I start watching Doctor Who? So I can tell you that it was added to our... Uh, Google Docs spreadsheet on April 27, 2011. So it has been there for over two years. When was our first episode? Uh, I think our first episode was actually not until after that, uh, in early June 2011. Wow, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been on there a long time. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I don't remember you watching it when we lived together after that cuz i started i started after i left crown heights mhm oh okay so, so that must have been 2010 time frame yeah so i guess it, it was right before smith took Matt over smith took over mm-hmm. it looks like yeah that and makes then sense I just because i uh, powered through them Eleventh, eleven, uh, the eleventh Doctor took over. It looks like uh, l- December two thousand nine, um, uh, or or maybe early two thousand ten. Yeah, spring of two thousand ten. Yeah, so that that that's the right time frame. Um, so so it had been on for a while before then, but it, I feel like you know it really kind of picked up in popularity around that time. Like I don't remember many people I know watching it throughout most of the 10th doctor and i know people like my brother and and, uh or my brothers uh started watching it around the same time that you did because all of a sudden it seemed like every single person i knew watched doctor who and i couldn't figure out how that happened i would say that there was probably a an initial bump somewhere around series four Mm -hmm. i guess Okay, so like halfway through the tenant era. No, I want to. I feel like it should even be before that. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a bump, maybe even when tenant took over, and then there was a bigger bump when Matt Smith was announced. Interesting, interesting. Um, so I would say that for most of the time that I've been watching Doctor Who personally, um, I would not really have counted myself as that much of a fan. Like, I was really not that impressed with this series for, like, a really seriously long time. Um, and, you know, I liked it here and there, and, and but I, I never really... 
I never really got it. And it's weird to say that about a show that I've literally probably watched, you know, days of at, by this point. Because I've watched most of the episodes between series one and now series seven and a half. So, I mean, that's that's a serious amount of TV. Um, but what I thought was uh, was interesting was that it never really clicked for me until the most recent episode that we're here to talk about today. And, until uh, the Day of the Doctor special. Um because the the you know the the whole point of this uh of this special the fiftieth anniversary special seems to have been looking back at the history of the doctor and so I think that pretty much anyone with any familiarity with Doctor Who feels varying levels of nostalgia when they watch this episode um and it was kind of the first one that made me think back and be like oh yeah like like uh you know um I I do miss the ninth Doctor, and and I do I did miss David Tennant and his manic uh, you know quips and stuff like that, and and kind of pulled all those right heartstrings for me, and and I think that those heartstrings are kind of even though it kind of purports to be a a, a sci-fi show, I think those kind of heartstrings and and emotional moments are are really much more what what the show is about, um, and so uh, I don't know that this was kind of a revelatory little uh, special for me. Did you feel kind of the? I mean, you you've been a m- much bigger fan of it than I have been for for all of this time. Um, but did you feel kind of similarly when you were watching Day of the Doctor? Uh, to it. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to to get that nostalgia when you see, um, you know, Tennant and uh, Billy Piper come back. Mm-hmm. Um, even if Billy Piper didn't really make that much sense, because the only one of the three who could see her was the only one who didn't have uh well okay so tenant couldn't couldn't see her and he's the only one who knew rose so it was kind of funny but i liked seeing her anyway i did too although i mean i was a little i was just a little disappointed that she wasn't really like rose rose she was yeah she was like manifestation rose yeah yeah which was but i mean i thought it was well played i guess Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Um, and oh man, that that whole bad wolf thing though is such a tease. <laughs> even even Ten didn't really get a, an answer. He was just like bad wolf, and then like they just moved on. <laughs> Did you just say I bad know. wolf? And then yeah, they just breezed right by it. Um, so for anybody, who, I mean, I, I guess most people probably know what we're talking about because they wouldn't be listening to this segment if they weren't at least somewhat Who fans. But basically, it's like the big fiftieth anniversary, and it uh, kind of brings together. Uh, the 10th Doctor, who's played by David Tennant, the 11th Doctor, who's played by Matt Smith, and the War Doctor, who's a, a new character played by John Hurt, as they kind of uh, show what happens uh, in the time period when um, the Doctor has uh, end- chosen to violently end the war between the Gallifreyans and the, the Daleks. So since, since the reboot of uh, Doctor Who... Um, back in 2005 with uh, Christopher Eccleston, mm-hmm. um, a sort of overarching um, idea was that he had been involved in this giant war that had basically left him with like PTSD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for since 2005, you don't really get. Like, you get little bits and pieces of things that happen, but you have no idea really what he what went, did. What, what, what he did and what went on. Yeah. I mean, you know that, like, 
the rest of the Time Lords are now gone. Um, for the most part, you know, the Daleks were defeated, but and that it took a great toll on him. Mm-hmm. But th- this was sort of the culmination of what, like, everything had been building to since uh, the show is brought back to TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and they did it super well, and it, and it really did uh, kind of answer some of those lingering questions. Uh, I, I don't remember because I... It's been a long time since I've watched these now, but um, did they ever actually say that it wasn't the Ninth Doctor who did who who ended the war until this episode? Because I always uh, just kind of assumed that it was the Ninth Doctor who had put a because you know he come you know they, they refer to actions taken by their past incarnations um, still in a possessive way. So he says, "I did this. I feel ashamed about this." At various points and stuff like that. But I just assumed that it was him before he showed up because we don't see his regeneration in the first episode. Right. He just um, arrives fully formed. Well, before before um, John Hurt's character, the War Doctor, was introduced, there was um, a lot of people pointed to the fact that in the first episode of uh, Series 1 with Christopher Eccleston, Rose, um, there's a scene where he, like catches a glimpse of himself in the mir- in a mirror or mm-hmm. a reflection mm-hmm. and he pauses and like goes back like he does a double take he looks like at his face again oh i see and so that was that had long been like a sort of context clue that he was very new to this body mm-hmm. he didn't know what he looked like yeah that's interesting i hadn't i hadn't heard that before have you seen any old who at all um, I've seen uh, a little bit of uh, four. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, who happened to have Tom, Tom Baker, who played the fourth Doctor, happened to have a nice little cameo, cameo. appearance at yeah. the end. And, and he, I feel like that is a lot of older folks' iconic Doctor. Like that is because he was he was the Doctor for a long time. Um, and I feel like if you, yeah, he had a very long run and I think, um, it was quite popular. I think when, when PBS replayed episodes of Dr. Who, I think that those seasons were just maybe just by sheer volume Mm -hmm. were mostly what got got played. Yeah. And so people at, at the time watching it, that's who they grew up with. Yeah, and I, I haven't watched any. They just recently, I think recently, or at least I just recently noticed that they put a ton of them on uh, Netflix. Um, so I was pretty excited to go back and, and kind of check some of them out um, and, and see how it was. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, there were a couple of different cameos. Some just kind of culled from, um, you know, old footage and stuff that that they had kind of stuck in there. Uh, you know via cgi um and then a couple of cameos by old doctors in this one and and i must i can only imagine the impact that that would have had if you actually had watched as a kid you know 40 years ago episodes with those with those doctors and i can only kind of imagine what that was like um and uh so let's talk about the episode itself which um 
like we mentioned, kind of reunites 10 and 11. And, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of framing device with the shapeshifter red dudes is like fine, I guess. It, it makes for some funny moments, especially when they're back in Elizabethan England and with the queen and, and, and stuff like that. And I, I, I like how I they guess. Kind of went around and, and filled in old holes about, cause there was one episode where the queen was quite angry with uh, 10, but he doesn't know why. Um, but, uh, oh yeah. And then later he mentions, and in one episode he mentions he might have married the queen of England. before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, we get some nice stuff with like tenant and a rabbit and stuff like that. Um, but uh, the things really don't kind of pick up until we really meet the war doctor on Gallifrey, and he you see how he kind of steals this unimaginably powerful weapon and, and stuff like that. And um, you know, I think when I first started watching the show, one of my disappointments was that it isn't it, it isn't uh, hard sci-fi in any kind of real way, and a lot of the time it's not even particularly. Uh, interested in examining kind of the questions of time travel or paradoxes or anything like that you know he spends a lot of time like running around london basically um fighting yeah. various forms of like aliens with different animal heads so it's like <laughs> one episode where there's like giant bees and like one episode was like a people with giant rhino heads and like one episode where like a um maybe those are a little bit back from the the davies era um but uh yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, um, where was I going with this? Uh, oh, um, so, like, really, you have to just like the kind of sense of adventure and stuff and not really look to it for kind of that hard sci fi stuff. But in this episode, they do give us quite a good little moral dilemma here that they have to kind of turn over and talk about and, uh, you know, kind of make decisions about. And, and it does turn out to be quite affecting, I think. I, I thought they hit all the notes in this episode that they needed to. It was just smart enough. It was just affecting enough. It was just kind of everything. I, I thought it was really great. Um, I mean... I don't know. I was kind of disappointed with the resolution of everything. Mm-hmm. Like, just because they, you know, sort of solve... The, their problem of destroying Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. But... And I mean, I guess it sets up this whole arc for season 8. Which is like finding, basically finding where finding, Gallifrey has been lost in time. They, yeah. Yeah. And so... And I guess part of, part of my hesitation is because I feel like Stephen Moffat has, has this track record of trying to set up these, these season-long mysteries mm-hmm. and i've always just been disappointed by how they resolve oh interesting uh, one of the kind of um interesting side effects of watching the whole thing offset by a couple of years is that i'm kind of insulated from a lot of the mom- moment to moment reactions of both fans and kind of critical people who are watching the show it's like which ones do you think which kind of moffat uh overarching storylines do you think were were failures in that way so like um let's see the whole of season six Mm -hmm. with uh 
Whoa. The uh like the death of like the doctor mm-hmm. and uh like that whole Wedding of River Song. I was and not a big da- fan the of the astronaut and the doctor dying and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like that. like she's like destined to kill him, but oh it's actually like was that robot replica thing Mm -hmm. like that was sort of a cop out Mm -hmm. and um we still don't know why the TARDIS exploded back in season 5 oh that's true like that's just a big fucking question mark (laughs) it's tough for me because I do think that kind of the resolution in that Wedding of River Song episode at the end of season 6 was pretty weak but I think actually one of my favorite uh things that they've done so far is the whole two-parter episode with the silence like in america and the president and stuff like that like the pilot like that 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 um not the pilot the that opening two episodes was really strong and Mm -hmm. i really liked that i just don't think i just feel like he set it up and then um it was the whole rest of the season was like him writing episodes and dropping in things like being like Look how smart I am. Look at this thing, <laughs> and then like, and then let me show you, mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. or let me let me tell you about like this little bit, and it it just it didn't it didn't really click for me. Yeah, and so that's why I think it's interesting that, and I mean I did I did really like the day of the doctor, and I mean I do think Stephen Moffat has put out some very good episodes like I did really again I did really like the impossible astronaut day of the day of the moon combination Mm -hmm. and obviously uh what was it blink is a uh classic Mm -hmm. episode and then his uh silence in the library forest of the dead yeah but I mean as you can see like so much of those like they are like Sounds of the Library, Force of the Dead, and then Blink. They're both sort of contained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Day of the Doctor also sort of contained. Yeah, and and I get what you're saying about the Day of the Doctor too, because it's kind of like, uh, in some ways, um, it, it kind of removes the emotional heft from that aspect of his character if he didn't actually. Like, he thinks that he wiped out all of Gallifrey, so it makes his reaction and his PTSD and all the stuff that he's been struggling with throughout the thing, like, those were all still valid, but it's kind of a little bit of a cheat, you know? Like, it's a cheat that didn't really bother me, but it is a little bit of a cheat where you basically say, like, oh, you know how you thought that this these doctors were different because they did this horrible thing? Well, it turns out that, like, that horrible thing, they didn't even really actually do it. Like, they figured out some way to around it, which is, like, totally in character, but also just, like, a little bit... It removes a little bit of the gravitas of that, but I, I, it didn't really bother me too much, I think. Um, it's interesting that you say that about Moffat because um, one of the things that I wanted to mention when we got around to talking about, uh, you know, Doctor Who at some point and something I've been thinking about ever since I started watching, and this is this may not be a very original comment. Like I said, I, I don't really know a lot about what people think about different aspects of uh of Doctor Who, but I noticed that all my favorite episodes are Moffat written episodes in Davies' uh, era. I feel like that that's a, a very 
predominant feeling among mm-hmm. like empty child fans. doctor dances with like the creepy kid with the uh you know the gas mask on uh, girl in the fireplace is a fantastic episode it was one of my favorite episodes for a long time uh, oh yeah it goes back to like uh what's her name uh, uh let them have cake woman no, 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 it was Madame Pompadour. Oh, you're right, you're right. Um, and then, let's see, Blink, obviously, which you mentioned, and the library episodes and stuff like that. Like, I, I really just think, like, like maybe Moffat is not quite as good of a showrunner as he is just a writer. Like, I think the quality of the actual writing, the dialogue and stuff, has gone way up since Moffat took over. Um, but maybe kind of those season-long things, like you were mentioning, um didn't work quite as well although i would say that the way that they that they resolve kind of the mystery of the multiple claras um in name of the doctor was was pretty good i like that a lot actually um yeah and see i think the interesting thing well yeah just to reinforce that statement if you notice stephen moffat didn't really seem to like um any of the plot lines that Russell T. Davies was developing throughout any of his uh, series mm-hmm. and or Russell T. Davies' characters. Mm-hmm. So he pretty much patently ignored them. <laughs> so like, Girl in the Fireplace, Rose and Mickey are off doing their own thing mm-hmm. while the Doctor is... Is off know, on his it, own. Yeah, which really seems very sort of out of character mm-hmm. the doctor mm-hmm. would kind of just abandon them on this ship with weird clockwork and then of course in in silence of the library and forest of the dead i don't know whether he already knew that he was going to take over as showrunner at that point but he introduces river song which is like this yeah a he, character he, that he would be obsessed with he writes out like oh well, you're like, right <laughs> he pushes donna donna's like barely in that storyline yeah and then and then obviously blink you know um no no doctor or companions really yeah so that was it, it was, that was its own self-contained standalone thing mm-hmm. so that i think yeah i think stephen moffat is and like he he is a long time doctor who fan from his childhood mm-hmm. so to a certain degree i feel like when he was made showrunner mm-hmm. he like it's like really bad fan fiction mm-hmm. like he just has this like grandiose idea of what he, of the direction he wants to take it and just and then he's like writing it and he's like look how clever i am which has happened before like i seem to remember seeing like something like you know the nine very different doctor who's or something was like an io9 article about you know how how throughout the years as different people have taken it over and taken it in different directions doctor who has been very different shows um, but I, I wonder whether that's why fan favorite characters from the Davies era have never made appearances in the Moffat era. Like I always kind of wonder why they never brought Jack Harkness back. He came back a couple times uh, in in Davies, right? He came back once a couple years after his original introduction. Um, Let's see, Harkness came back. Well, he was introduced. And uh, in the 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 World War Two ones with the little kid in the em- gas mask, empty child doctor dances, and then I mean we see him again in oh no I guess he stay he just stays with them through Boomtown and Bad Wolf Parting of Ways, mm-hmm. 
And then, when do we see him again? Do we not see him again until um, the season see. four finale? It says in the closing scene of the 2010 Doctor Who special, The End of Time, the critically injured Doctor gives each companion a farewell, finding Jack in an exotic alien bar. He leaves him a note. Um... So that was in the last, the the very end of the last tenant right. episode. But he no, but they do they do meet up again in Stolen Earth Journey's End. Oh, okay, I see. So he does Which come back, was, I guess, once. Yeah, but I mean, he was also busy with Torchwood. Torchwood stuff, yeah. Did you have you watched Torchwood? I have not seen any Torchwood, but I heard it was not that great. Yeah, you can you can save your time weirdly enough somebody told me about torchwood uh before i knew about doctor who and did not mention doctor who so i was just like what's going on <laughs> who are these people <laughs> had no context for it at all well i think i mean it stands it stands alone pretty well mm, i don't i've never really watched it very much it's it's just not it's just i don't think it's as good yeah um you know what I thought was interesting is um, I, I really, really liked Day of the Doctor, but I actually think that Nine of the Doctor, that little prequel thing, was almost better. I really want to see some more with that guy uh, who only who made the one like TV movie appearance. Paul McGann, the Eighth Doctor. Yeah, he was awesome. <laughs> there are a lot of um, there are a lot of radio dramas that mm-hmm. he did. Oh, that's right. And, he was in like eighty radio dramas or something. And so, actually, um, when he says like that, sorry, like to all the all his previous companions thing, mm-hmm. like he mentions companions he had in the radio dramas, mm-hmm. and fans of the radio drama got super excited because <laughs> that basically establishes it as like hard canon. Ah, uh, like before it was like never quite. So yeah, because like there's all sorts of like peripheral Doctor Who stuff, mm-hmm. you know, radio dramas and like books and blah blah blah, um, little mini whatever mm-hmm. episodes, mm-hmm. and so all of them they sort of count as like canon, well, unless something in the show happens to contradict, in which case, well, then it's just like not really there, kicked out, yeah, yeah. But so like fans that have loved the radio drama at least when i was look, browsing through the doctor who subreddit mm-hmm. they they went nuts for for that just that line just establishing mhm mhm uh, that's interesting yeah it manages to pack a lot into like 6 minutes and 45 seconds like there's a genuine like emotional you feel sad for the doctor it's like very good at establishing his character as like this caring uh you know happy person who doesn't have you know what it takes to actually be the doctor that the world needs and stuff like that. Like I don't know, it's just it was just almost perfect, and I, um, I, I keep coming back to it. It's like somehow in six minutes, they managed to totally answer a, a really a, a startling number of questions from about about where this new, you know, where this this happened in in the doctor's life. I don't know. I really liked it a lot. Um, maybe even yeah, no. more than than Swaths of Day of the Doctor. Ah, uh, I think, I think you're right. Only because, at least partially, because it's only seven minutes, mm-hmm. and so it's just there's there's no there's no valley. It's just all yeah, like bursting forward, and like 
every every bit of writing and every bit of delivery that Paul McGann does with that writing is just amazing. Yeah. I love that line where like the the sister the guardians of the flame mm-hmm. are telling him he has like I don't know like 60 seconds to live or something. Mm-hmm. And he goes on about like how that's like way too much time and like if you get a book, maybe a television, <laughs> some <Yeah>. knitting done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I I don't know, it's just he brings like a very a lot of gravitas and sadness to the role too. Um I don't know. It was it was great. It was great. So so you know, it sounds like maybe you're not all that pumped about where it might go in season eight with the finding of Gallifrey and stuff like that. Um I'm a little bit surprised that Stephen Moffat decided to stay on because you know I've read things about how, you know, he's 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 got a lot of Sherlock obligations too and stuff like that and with Matt Smith leaving and Russell Davies left when Tennant left, so it just seemed like a natural time. So um do you think he's staying just because uh, you know, he he wasn't ready to leave, or is there a specific story here that you think he really wants to tell? Uh, knowing Moffat, probably both. I mean, he loves Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. He loves Doctor Who. I'm sure he has a story that he wants to tell with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't want to let it go. Mm-hmm. And I and to be fair, I think it would be um if both him and Smith left in the same season. I think it would be. Uh, very hard. Just like it, like I have a hard time remembering that, um, like Doctor Who with Tenant is the same show as Doctor Who with Eleven. Yeah, like they're they're so starkly different. Um, and part of that was like it was just a complete change. So mm-hmm. you have new Doctor, you have new companions, you have a new showrunner. Mm-hmm. There's like nothing that ties it together. Whereas like. Um, when Eccleston left and Tennant came on, like you still had Rose, you still had Russell T. Davies manning the helm mm-hmm. with his sort of hit and miss style of writing. Yeah, and you know we have had quite a long <laughs> Russell Davies. <he's, laughs> some episodes from that era are really bad. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, you know. Uh, we also had quite a long time to get used to Eleven as a doctor in the same way that we did with Tenet. Like, I remember, it took me a, a pretty serious amount of time to to even enjoy any of the Matt Smith. That, I, I was not on board with Eleven for quite a while. I was like, I want my, you know, quirky, tousle-haired uh, Scotsman back. Um, hmm. But, um, you know, eventually you get used to it and, and it goes on. But I do think that that was definitely a more difficult uh, interaction. Um, and also just because he'd been there for a while. You know, Eccleston only was in there one uh, one season. So For just, yeah, like uh, 13 seven. short little episodes. Yeah. Which I guess he also did not want to come back. No. Which I think is interesting. And then another one... Colin Baker, who is another doctor, was like pissed that no one asked him to come back. It's like uh, Stephen Moffat can't make anybody happy with this uh, this episode of Doctor Who, except Tom Baker and uh, John Hurt, I guess. And and Will Palm again. Will Palm again. Who is that? Palm again and Palm again. Oh, and Palm again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did like though that they they were like we are not in the doc 
we we do not come back. We do not reprise the Doctor and the Doctor Who special. And it's like that is such a cop out. <laughs> it is so true. So one of one of you is in a short that airs as a prequel to it, and the other does not directly play the Doctor at the end of the episode. Yeah, that was okay. kind of weird. I don't really understand what was happening there because he kind of hinted that he was a future Doctor, or you know, but or a future incarnation, but. Played by the guy who was the past incarnation. I guess past and future don't really. I don't know. I thought that I was very confused about what was happening with with Tom Baker's character, in the end of the Day of the Doctor. But I guess yeah. he's supposed to be a little bit mysterious. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that's been helping me is that the production values have been steadily increasing. As maybe as the show has gotten more popular, or maybe it's a showrunner thing. Definitely true. But uh, I, I really had a lot of problems with the aesthetic in the beginning, where I was like, <laughs> "Why are not. the special effects so bad?" I was like, "This is not expensive. You can do this cheaply." <laughs> like Firefly did this had way better special effects way before Doctor Who. Why does everything look so shitty? <laughs> maybe you shouldn't watch the older seasons because <laughs> so. they really are like B-grade <laughs> movies. Well, but there I think it's fair. Like I think what pissed me off was that so, you know, if 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 a if something is legitimately old and it has bad special effects, you know, I give it a pass. I'm like, whatever. You know, it was TV in the 80s. Like no one had any budget you know, they didn't have, you know, they couldn't go Star Wars route and make incredibly meticulous little model spacecraft or the 2001 route or, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have that kind of money. So I kind of like understand that. But like the early revitalized series who was like a modern show made by a modern channel, it's it was extremely popular. <laughs> like I have to believe that it's the BBC's biggest fictional show. Um and so I was just kind of, I, I would just remember watching it like in total bafflement being like, guys, get your act together. And I know it's like part of the, you know, the, the nostalgia, the aesthetic or whatever. Maybe people were fine with it in England because, you know, they're used to Doctor Who just having shitty special effects. <laughs> but I was just, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't deal. I, I keep coming back to the Giant Bees episode. Okay, um, yeah, the Giant Bees. <laughs> because <laughs> they just look so bad <laughs> the unicorn and the wasp is the name of the episode and it is a a uh i i think he said said in italy i, I think uh agatha christie is involved somehow yeah um is that in, are you sure it's in italy i think so let's see let's look at the wikipedia page uh oh no it's said in england in 1926 i don't know why i thought yeah. it was said in italy yeah i was like what are you talking about yeah but that was the one where I just, you know, was staring at the TV with my mouth open, being like, what the hell are you guys doing? But, you know, the, the two things have happened. First of all, they've upped the special effects game a lot. And second of all, I've come to like the characters and their interactions and stuff a lot more. So I'm able to put that kind of stuff aside. But I definitely think that was maybe like a Russell T. Davies not really knowing what look he wanted his show to have. We'll see... I feel like, especially these later, especially since Stephen Moffat has taken over, a lot of the two-part episodes mm-hmm. have been kind of bad. 
See, I kind of feel I feel the opposite about the Davies era, where I feel like there was tons of filler between the stories that it seemed like he really cared about telling. So, like, I would have loved if, uh, you know, just the two-part episodes existed for, for example, series one. Like, maybe you had Rose, Aliens of London, World War Three as one, The Empty Child of Dr. Dances as two, and then Bad Wolf and Parting of Ways as three. That seems like a good... Let's see. Um... Oh, no, I don't really like Aliens of London, World War Three. Mm, I don't remember these very well, maybe... That's the one with the the farting aliens. Oh, does it have Mickey? I really just hate Mickey. Yeah, I think it does I think, have Mickey. I think Dalek is really important for series one. Yeah. Although, man, I wish if if there were one plea that I would make to the Doctor Who writers, it'd be just don't do anything with the Daleks or the Cybermen ever again. What I really hope Russell T. Davies, or sorry, what Stephen Moffat can move away from are. The Weeping Angels. Yeah, because they're like, not scary anymore. They were terrifying, and every time I see them again, I'm just like... I'm I'm over it. Yeah, like in Angels Take Manhattan with the like, Statue of Liberty and stuff, they just weren't, they just yeah, weren't that I, scary in that episode. I, so I really hope that was the last of it. Yeah. Yeah, because in Blink, they were like really terrifying. Yeah. Um, and even in that other one where they're like on the world and they're like chasing them, I forget what the what this episode was. Oh, um, and there are the, the like the the clerics or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. Time of Angels, Flesh of Flesh and Stone. Yeah, even that one. I also thought was they were pretty scary in that one. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of done with them now. Although I guess they're supposed to be in the time of the Doctor, the Christmas episode that's coming up. Oh boy. It is to feature multiple monsters, including the Cybermen, the Silence, Daleks, and the Weeping Angels. I do like the Silence. They are legitimately terrifying. They are, but I I just hope they don't go through that same process. Yeah, where where they're like... Each subsequent appearance kind of neuters their horror. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... Many of the episodes, actually it goes both ways. I feel like a lot of episodes in the Smith era, either they tried to compress what should have been expanded into two episodes into one, mm-hmm. and that didn't work out very well. Um, Like uh, Night Terrors. Which was the one in that like weird dollhouse thing? Oh yeah. Um, and there are some episodes that I thought should not have been two episodes, like Hungry Earth, Cold Blood. You know who I do really like and who I always want to see more of. I'm always happy when they show up. Oh, his like weird Victorian era like club of people. No, although I do like that short dude with the uh, with the bald head. Who wants to fight everybody? That guy's awesome. I don't really like the other two people. But I really like the Ood for some reason. Oh, okay. I don't know the Ood. I don't know why. I just, they're so tragic, but so, like, kind of weirdly adorable. I don't know. I really like the Ood a lot. I don't know. They they kind of bore me. Hmm. I feel indifferent to them. Like, when, when they freed the Ood, I was like, okay. 
Hooray. <laughs> I like them. They've got such weird tentacle faces. Uh, um, I'm bummed to hear that this uh, Neil Gaiman episode from season seven is no good because I really liked The Doctor's Wife. The Doctor's Wife is great. Nightmare and Silver, not so much. Hmm. Sad. All right, well, anything else on Doctor Who? I feel like it's good that we've got it out of our system, and, and I'm glad that we got to talk about it right at a time when I was actually starting to really enjoy it and consider myself a fan, because I feel like if, we, if we'd have talked about it like somewhere in Series 2 or 3... You'd have been a lot more negative. I'd have been like, what the fuck is this show? I hate this so much. <laughs> Giant uh, bees everywhere. Can't get over these bees, man. They were so bad. <laughs> just have to accept it. Yeah. Um. I. I really think, just the, the strongest point of, Day of the Doctor was to showcase, um, Moffat's ability to write, character dialogue, mm-hmm. and the actor's ability to, emote that dialogue. He did write uh, Tenant uh, Ten. Uh, the Tenth Doctor pretty perfectly. Yeah. Um, which the, I guess he had some practice with from, from his time as a writer there, but uh, it, it was like he, he never left. Um, um, like, the dialogue exchanges were amazing. And yeah. yeah. Like, I think that's, that's pretty much exactly what fans want to see, is their favorite characters meeting up hanging out and like just talking shooting the shit yeah like I, I feel like people would have been kind of okay if it would have just been you know 10 11 and the war doctor locked in that prison for the whole episode with uh you know everyone kind of snarking at each other and the war doctor constantly making fun of uh 10 shoes yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's pretty much all people care about let's be totally honest well because like if you look at it um the the whole plot line of the zygons the shapeshifters mm-hmm. planning to like take over the world and like their resolution to that problem where they just made everyone forget if they're a zygon or a human mm-hmm. like that that plot line just kind of like the ending just was like Oh, yeah, and they resolved it. Yeah, because it's like, well, we got to move on to the other thing that we got to talk about because uh, that stuff's more important. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and even, even like, the the plot with, uh, was it The Moment? I feel mm-hmm. it. And the, that, res- like, I com- like I said earlier, like, that resolution was not super strong. In my opinion, I I kind of disagree. I thought that it was extremely stirring when uh, you know all of the doctors and the various uh, Tardises kind of came swooping in, and you know it turned out that they'd actually been working on all the calculations and stuff for this since way back in the original Doctor, and you got the shot of all of them standing there, uh, you know, kind of in a that V, and you got just a uh, momentary glimpse of. Uh, Peter Capaldi's furrowed brow. Um, I don't know that I I was kind of sitting there like being like fuck yeah at that part. I was like y'all the doctors together again. You saw like a brief shot of like nine, you know, turning on his TARDIS or whatever. I don't know. I, I really liked all that stuff. So I think I the, guess the resolution was was. I guess part of the problem is that like that moment mm-hmm. ha- will have no impact 
on like character development or anything at all in the writing like it like it was a like you're right it was a great moment mm-hmm. but it will never be referenced mm. by the nature of the of the fact that like once this happens like the time stream like corrects itself or whatever and everyone forgets what's ha- what happens mm-hmm. as sort of a cop out to keep continuity for the past since they changed yeah like what they established for the past seven seasons <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I guess that's just why I just feel a little disappointed. Yeah. I also, the only thing that I was thinking about after that was over was that it would have been even better if they would have had a bunch of his incarnations going forward. Because there's no reason to think that like 13 is going to be, or 12 is going to be the last incarnation, right? Um, Capaldi. So like it would have been pretty cool if they would have had like, you know, a hundred TARDISes with, you know, a hundred, even if they were just like out of focus, blurry in the background or whatever, um, of his of his incarnation, because they didn't really go forward, even though they totally could. Uh, right. Well, I I mean, way back when, um, what was it? The, it's it's like Time Lord law that there are only twelve regenerations or something. Oh, really? Yeah. This this was like. From the original series, like it was like a, an offhanded comment, or I don't know if it's offhanded, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like it was like something like the writers wrote it in, ex- never expecting like it to ever bump up to that line, and mm-hmm. how they obviously they'll figure something out and write themselves out of that corner, but I think for now they're trying to play within those rules mm-hmm. because if they didn't, without any explanation, people might be like. WTF. Yeah. That's kind of an offhanded uh, shitstorm that somebody caused back in like 1968 when they're like, how many can there be? Well, we're on number one now. Why don't you just put 12? Okay, I'll put 12. And then now in 2013, everyone's like, well, fuck, now we're on 12. What are we supposed to do when at the end of this guy's life? Just find a way to write themselves out of it, but still. Yeah. Anything else about uh, who that we should talk about? I'm, I am excited to see Capaldi. I've, I have seen him in uh, the thick of it, and he is probably more foul-mouthed there than he will be uh, in, in Doctor Who, but I'm still excited. I, I feel like he is um, probably the most uh, the most change they could have from Matt Smith while still keeping it as a, like a white dude. You know, because there were some like rumors, or maybe kind of more fan hopes that someone like Idris Elba, or you know, like maybe there would be a black doctor, or maybe even be a woman yeah. doctor. But then, like, actually, yeah. no, it's just gonna be another white dude. But I feel like he will be a change from actually from Eccleston Smith and uh, Tennant. Uh, yeah. So, so that's nice. Maybe he'll be a little bit less manic and a little bit more sarcastic. Yeah, but you're right. A lot of people were kind of upset that it's another white guy. Yeah, well, because it, it kind of became like a thing that people were kind of hoping they could exert some pressure or, uh, you know, um, figure out some way that, that they could influence. But, you know, really, they had to go with who was available and who actually wanted and who Stephen Moffat wanted. And there's like a lot of stuff to think about that's not just necessarily, you know. I feel like maybe back when they started talking about this, Idris Elba was not having such a booming film career, but it's like, actually now, <laughs> he's kind of a movie actor, and he's in Nelson Mandela movies, and 
Pacific Rim and Thor, and he doesn't got time for your Doctor Who, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. I th- I, th- I still think they could have found could have found somebody, and I think if thirteen or, or is still just a white dude, it's gonna start getting a little uncomfortable. But I'm not unhappy with this choice, really. No, I'm not either. Uh, so the other thing that we have on the docket for today is Thor 2, the newest installment in Marvel's uh, kind of Phase 2 movies. So if uh, Phase 1 was essentially everything up to Avengers, then this and Iron Man 3 are the only Phase 2 movies so far, right? There was another one over the summer that I've forgotten about. Iron Man 3, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and then Captain America 2, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Ant-Man, I think, will round it out before Avengers 2. Uh, or maybe Ant-Man's on the other side of Avengers 2. I don't remember. I think I think Ant-Man is on the other side, but I think there's another... I think we are still missing one before Avengers 2. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember if we talked about the original Thor movie on the podcast. I think it, it came out before... Uh, before we started, but I don't remember whether we've ever mentioned it or anything like that. But I don't. I don't think we did. I, I seem to remember that I was a bigger fan than you were. Is that? Uh, is that? I, yeah, I, I, I seem to remember you did not like the original Thor very much. Nope. Yeah. So, so what did you think of this movie? Um, I thought it was much better, but I still thought there were a lot of problems with it, and. Uh, I, it's not. It's still weirdly not like the rest of. I don't think Thor as a character, especially standalone, fits with the rest of uh, the Marvel universe. Interesting, interesting. Because just because he's like a mythological or kind of. I think God. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think just um, the very nature of his character, they have to make these different storylines. And they just are not what you traditionally expect out of a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like, if eh. you had to give it a grade, like, where would you land? Like, which uh, B, B minus? Uh, yeah, probably B minus C plus. Okay, it's definitely stronger than Thor, mm-hmm. which was very much like this weird, uh, like story of a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. And how he adapts to a a new world. Mm-hmm. At least, at least Thor two was much more. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. A, a hero overcoming the obstacle put in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I liked the original Thor more than you did, but I think over time my view of it is kind of dimmed a little bit. You know. Like, I, I liked it when I watched it, but as Marvel's released more and more movies and they've kind of gotten better and better, I, I kind of was making a list the other day of where of what my favorite movies are from this Marvel Extended Universe, and, and Thor was pretty far down on the list, and the only thing that it beat were the kind of really abysmal ones, uh, like Iron Man 2 and uh, especially The Hulk, um, which is just a bad movie. Um, but I kind of really love the shit out of Thor 2. I thought it was awesome. Um and there's some things that I, that I liked a lot about it, and I'll kind of talk about those, and then there's some things that I thought are still lacking and are kind of, like, weirdly lacking in all of Marvel's movies, and, and we can talk about that, too. Um, but things I love about it, it was much more nonstop action. It was none of that talky fish-out-of-water stuff from the 
the first movie. Um, I, I really thought Alan Taylor, who came from television, actually came from Game of Thrones, um, had a much better sensibility than uh, Kenneth Branagh did, even you know, though Kenneth Branagh respected director and stuff. But um, Alan Taylor's uh, vision of, uh, what's it called? Thor world. Uh, Asgard. Uh, just looked way, way better and actually impressive and like a place where people or, or gods actually like live and not just like a, you know, like a set, like a CGI set, like the last one looked. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that we had uh, Frigga, um, uh, Thor's mother, uh, one being totally badass um, and uh, to actually dying because it kind of proved that the gods can. It, it's an open question before that, I would say, about whether or not these creatures can actually die. Right. Um, well, you know, uh, Odin does say, uh, like, I forget what the line was like. Thor says something about being a god, or, or maybe it was Loki. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. And Odin says, We are not gods, we, yeah. we live and die. Just like men. Yeah, but in this in this movie, he says that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Because in Thor one, it was kind of like they are gods. They are gods. Like, <laughs> and even they through, rule over everything. Even through, uh, you know, Avengers. Avengers. Like, I guess Loki's kind of, you know, lock him in the in the little hamster ball or whatever. But like, and you never really think that when that thing hits the earth, Thor is actually going to die. Um, so I like that they kind of established that vulnerability. Um, I continue to kind of like Natalie Portman, even though she's not given very much to do. And in this movie, I especially liked Kat Dennings and her poor intern uh, yeah. running around back on Earth. Um, it, it was a genuinely funny movie, too, which there were a lot of laugh-out-loud moments that I like a lot. Um, even just kind of little touches, like the things that are maybe in the script, but they require kind of a good eye and a good director to kind of... and good acting to kind of realize. Like there's a moment when... Um, Thor comes into uh, one of the houses on Earth that belongs to one of the scientists. I forget whether it's Natalie Portman or, or Kat Dennings' character, and he kind of hangs uh, Milner on the wall in like, oh, a, yeah, like an umbrella rack or something. Um, and it's just this, like a little like delicacy and also like incongruity of having that thing there. And I, I don't know, I just it was a, just a great moment. And there were lots of little funny moments like that uh, kind of scattered throughout the film that I really like. Um, and I really liked the kind of climactic scene, which is kind of this portal-esque, you know, fucking with physics up is down, holes in space-time kind of deal that was, was pretty fun. Um, it did look really cool, and I think they had a lot of fun mm-hmm. playing around with it. Yeah, yeah. So overall, I, and I really liked the movie, and I kind of sat there with a big... Uh, goofy grin on my face kind of the same way I did in in Avengers and Iron Man 3 um though at the same time I still feel like um most Marvel movies are like weirdly terrible about writing villains because we have another villain here in Malekith who like does not really have a personality and who does not really seem all that scary Um, correct I was I was kind of really shocked. I didn't realize it was Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, me neither. He's like unrecognizable underneath all of that. Uh... It gets to the credits, and I was just like, "Wait, what? Really?" And then I, <laughs> I like I'm like squinting at the screen, like, "Uh, nope, still don't see it." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the the guy from Lost, uh, Mr. Echo, was also in this movie. That yeah. Uh, 
also could not recognize him under but you know even more than just being buried under the makeup they're just not given anything to do you know they talk in a different language most of the time um you only kind of understand what they're trying to do but my uh my poor poor grandparents went to see this movie they're in their 70s and they did not enjoy the film I, let me just say this they did not enjoy the film um uh, and they thought that it was, uh, you know, a lot of flashing lights and, and lunacy and idiocy and, and were, were kind of, it made them, it, it like caused a little bit of existential crisis in them about like the state of film in, in the 2013s, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like afterward, my grandfather, like, you know, I'm sitting there and, and, and we're at Thanksgiving. It's kind of like after dinner, we're drinking wine. He kind of leans forward to me and he says, so we went to see this Thor movie this weekend. And I was like, uh-huh. And he's like, tell me what happened in the movie and i was like what do you mean he's like what was the plot of the movie and i realized as i'm attempting to remember the plot to say to him that i sound like a gibbering idiot like (laughs) well there's these dark elves and they really want this ether because the last time all of the seven worlds aligned uh they used the ether but they couldn't quite use it because like Odin's dad maybe locked it away somewhere, but then somehow Natalie Portman finds it and it gets into her body, uh, and then, then Thor takes her to Asgard, and then like and it's just like there's just no, you never you know, it's just it, there's there's a a MacGuffin like the Tesseract or uh, you know any of the other MacGuffins that have been used in other Marvel movies, and there's a villain right. who wants the MacGuffin for some kind of unknown but malevolent purpose and then the hero has to keep the MacGuffin away from the villain and I kind of want there to be actual villains who have actual stakes in the story it's kind of annoying Iron, like in Iron Man it was uh, Jeff Bridges and he wanted the suit or mm-hmm. like take over the company or whatever oh yeah Iron Man 2 was Sam Rockwell and Mickey Rourke were the villains and what did they want to do? They wanted they 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 just want to like destroy Iron Man because like Tony Stark like ruined their company or something? like yeah because like Mickey Rourke was like a scientist right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like Tony Stark's dad stole something from him or something. Oh yeah. Anyway, see Iron Man two suffers from the problem where. I don't remember anything from that fucking movie. All I remember is th- that the uh, fight scene at the Grand Prix was actually pretty goddamn cool. Yeah, that, everything that, else I, was really. I think dumb. That's the only thing that anyone remembers. Yeah. Anyway, so like too many of the of the Marvel movies so far have been like, oh no, it's a glowy thing. Oh no, that guy wants the glowy thing. Like you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> give it a rest right. already. Um, and, and, and so and I think that was a know, problem with Thor. Although as well. to be fair to your your grandparents, like I feel like. Even I had a hard time catching everything that was going on in the Dark World. Mm-hmm. Like, I was very confused why uh, Jane's mentor mm-hmm. uh, was, like, crazy. Oh, because he got his brain scrambled by Loki. Yeah, I va- like... I vaguely remember that, but like it was like, meh. You, you know I, what I think? So, but I think that is actually a uh, 
a, a very interesting point and I think kind of an important point, which is that as far as I know, Marvel is doing something uh, kind of new here, or at least new on this scale. They are uh, making a, a blockbuster film series where you have to see every film. And they have just kind of been like, oh, you didn't see the last film? Well, tough shit. You won't understand anything. You won't know who this woman is. You won't know why Thor wants this woman so bad. You won't know who this guy is. Like, you won't know who Odin is. Like, they don't, they have stopped uh, worrying about, you know, there's no previously on or, or no opening segment like Lord of the Rings had where it filled in on what happened one movie back. Um, they are just kind of saying, it is your responsibility to come up to speed with the canon because otherwise you will not understand like what is happening. And characters will make references like slapping someone across the face and saying, that was for New York. And if you didn't see Avengers, then you will not understand that. Like, <laughs> and, uh, too bad. <laughs> uh, so I mean, it's kind of exciting, but it's also, I feel like it's kind of new because like to understand James Bond movies, you generally speaking, do not have to have seen the last James Bond movie. And even Empire Strikes Back or, you know, Star Wars movies had that scrolling wordy thing that was supposed to get you up to speed. A little texty. Yeah. Yeah, And I think in in certain respects, I really like that because you get to see this, like Iron Man 3, you really saw this part of Tony Stark dealing with the trauma of everything he went through in Avengers and I thought that was great, and I do like, if I'm in the know, I do like seeing, like, all of these little recurring inside jokes, because, you know, it's fun to be like, oh, hey, I get that reference. I get um, that reference. That's Even that itself was a reference. Exactly. That's <laughs> why I thought it was apropos. Um, but at the same time, like... I feel like, um, like this thing with uh, Doctor Selvig, like that 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 plot line in Avengers was so minor and such in the background because, like, you like in the Avengers, you don't really care about Doctor Selvig. No, not really. He's just the guy who they're, they're just he was just the the character from another movie that happened to fill the role that they needed for a human that knew things about sciencey crap mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and then in, in this movie and like in this movie like was a when did avengers come out uh a year ago may so yeah like 18 months later like i barely remember that <laughs> that detail that he like got shocked by that stupid thing yeah that loki built and yeah. like us and then and then even really like i don't even think making him crazy was necessary to the plot no, me neither. At one point, he says something like, "You know, a god was inside my head. Try it sometime, or something like that." But yeah, Hawkeye like he, was not, Hawkeye wasn't crazy, and he was, uh, you know, possessed for basically the same amount of time. So I don't really know why why that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 definitely risky, and it definitely, uh, it, it you know, as these movies all just get on top of each other. You'll have to keep track of more and more and more, but it's like it's comic booky in a way that even comic book movies haven't been before. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, where it's like this, it, this sprawling canon 
and you have to read everything to catch up. It's like, I don't know, it's a, it's a very pure distillation of how comic books work um, in a way that, like, I, I really don't think you would be lost watching X2 if you haven't seen X-Men. Um, Probably not. I, it's been a long time to so watch yeah. the X-Men franchise. Although I do think... Actually, I don't know. I'll be... I was going to say, I do think you should have seen First Class to watch Days of Future Past, but maybe you don't. Has Days of Future... It hasn't come out yet, right? No, it hasn't come out yet. Yeah. But, like, when I've seen the trailers, it just... It feels like I should have. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you seen... Have you seen, uh... First Class? Yeah. Not yet. Oh, man, it's really good. You should I watch know, it. I'll get, I'll get to it. <laughs> you, you would like it. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I'll get to it. Yeah. I have not watched The Wolverine, though I heard good things about it when it came out this summer. Um, I heard that it was much better than the first one. Yeah, and, me too. But I was like, well, that's a pretty low bar to jump over. That's true. I just think, because we've been, you know, this podcast, uh, we've kind of chronicled uh, at least some of this kind of Marvel uh, Marvel cinematic universe world building that they've been doing through all these movies. And at every turn, I just was and continued to be kind of uh just blown away by the thought and the gutsiness of what they're trying to do um and i i really don't can't remember another attempt to build such a coherent but yet sprawling world uh in in film in particular um and it actually makes me feel good about the Star Wars movies that are supposed to start coming out in 2015, because Disney now owns Marvel, and the woman who mm-hmm. uh, has taken over the Star Wars films, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, seems like quite, uh, you know, she's got a good head on her shoulders. Um, and I I have to think that she's looking at Marvel churning out, you know, blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster, and, and is going to try to replicate that with Star Wars, and I think that's going to be kind of exciting, because they're going to be trying to do exactly the same thing if they want to release one Star Wars film a year in perpetuity. So, I guess we'll right. see kind of how it goes. Anyway, anything else? I mean, I think a lot of the characters in Thor 2 is... I just feel like it was really uneven. Like, all of his weird warrior friends. He's like, first of all, or whatever. First of all, like, the, the one woman, uh, Sif. Mm-hmm. That like was the weakest. Romance. That was like the weakest romantic triangle I've ever seen set up yeah, outside of the do. Hunger Games. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it all ends in like one smoldering glance. Um, and then I just don't understand. But then I also thought that I thought that um, Natalie Portman's character spent a lot of that movie pretty much just damsel in distress. Definitely, she definitely was, but it didn't bother me. And, I, and I've actually heard some really interesting kind of back and forth on this, where I listened to a podcast called Wham Bam Pow with a couple of uh, comedians, um, especially Cameron Esposito is the is the host, and she's a, like a stand-up. Um, and they were quite disparaging of basically all the women in the movie. They were like, this movie is has horrible female characters and they're just all damsel in distressy. But then I also read a very interesting article called uh, Why uh, Thor 2 Made This Feminist Happy, um, where they basically talked about the fact that uh, it, it easily passes the Bechtel test and 
Um, you know, women have actual badass things to do and they're treated as intelligent people. And, you know, despite Natalie Portman kind of being a little bit damsel in distressy on the whole, it seems like pretty good, especially compared to other Marvel properties where like, you know, uh, Pepper Potts is pretty much damsel in distressy in every movie that she plays a role in. So it's not much different. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's kind of a wash. I think they did a little yeah. bit better and they could continue to do better. And I think that Marvel really should come out with a female-led movie pretty soon. Uh, I mean, she did do more than the last movie, but... Yeah. Yeah. And then... uh, I talked about... I actually liked uh, Kat Dennings way more than Natalie Portman in this movie. Me too. She was way more interesting. Yeah, she had good rapport with her poor intern guy... And she, just in general, is a much funnier and more pleasant character to be around. Um, but we mentioned, like, on the... F- oh, and then we mentioned, like, the the villains were, for the most part, pretty ho-hum. But on the flip side, I, again, really liked Tom Hiddleston playing Loki. And I was... Uh, very confused with the ending of his character until he, at the very end, where he was like, oh, just kidding, I was posing as he pops Odin. Out. Odin, and now I'm sitting on the throne. Suck it. Hiddleston is just, he's he just oozes charisma. Like, he is going to have a very long uh, and prosperous career because you just, whenever he's on screen, you just can't take your eyes off of him. He just has so much fun, and you hate him, but you like him at the same time. And oh, why is it so? Uh, uh, I don't know. He's he's perfect in these movies, and I almost worry that we're gonna have like an overexposure, like an angels problem, um, a weeping angels problem, where they're just gonna put Loki and everything just because he's so uh, popular and, and charismatic. Maybe um, I'm fine but... with him staying the uh, the uh, villain of the Thor movies, but I was pretty happy that he's not gonna be in Avengers two. Yeah, but I, I'm just really glad for him because where Malekith fell mm. short, um, he, right at the end of that twist where he's really orchestrated this whole thing, mm-hmm. started to put himself in a position of power was great. Yeah. And that, and I'm fine with him being, and like, he's an o- perfect overarching villain. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, I think it's great too. What do you think of the uh, post credit sequence? Uh, or the which like one? Mid, the mid credit sequence, I guess. The the first one where they're dropping off the uh, the Infinity Stone. Mm-hmm. It, it looked really cheap to me, and maybe that's just because they shot it really fast or something. But like it just was like really poorly lit, like very flat and very cheap looking. And I was like, man, I really hope Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't actually look like this. Um, sold on Guardians of the Galaxy as I think other people are because I'm not that big of a James, what's his name? Uh, uh, Slither guy uh, James um, Gunn, that's right James, James Gunn. Gunn. I'm not as big of a James Gunn fan as I think a lot of other people seem to be because they seem to be like really on board with this movie already um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, I think that might be a kind of a laughable uh, disaster, but I guess we'll. And I mean, we'll well, and I think, I think it's one of the weaker, uh, 
source materials in the Mar in yeah. the Marvel lineup yeah. too. And I think that that will be a good test case for how far people are really willing to follow Marvel. It's like you think that gods are weird, or you know, uh, you know dudes from the 40s who got really hooked up and came forward in time like just wait till you see a movie where like there's a anthropomorphic tree and a raccoon with a big gun and like all kinds of this this movie is going to be really really weird and so it, you know even yeah. if they pull it off it's possible people might not follow them down that path even if they make the best possible guardians of the galaxy movie it's possible people will be like you know I'm just not down with this. Like, I can't take this movie. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very hard line to walk between mm-hmm. mass appeal and uh, keeping in line with the source material. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's also possible that they'll make a bad version of it, and then it'll just be even more laughable. So That's I'll be kind true. of surprised. I'll be kind of surprised if they if they pull it off, because, like I said, even a... Even a perfect version of this movie could easily be a failure. But I don't know. I, I guess we'll see. I, I really liked Slither, obviously. Um, but I really hated Super, which is James Gunn's only other feature film. Um, I don't. Th- I never watched it. Oh, God. It really sucked. Um, it, was, it had Rain Wilson. It came out exactly the same time as Kick-Ass, and it had kind of the same plot. Oh, yeah. No, I vaguely remember it. But where, I, yeah. like, he's like a fake superhero who tries to fight crime but he's really just like a sad dude who's like violently hurting people um so yeah i don't know i don't know i guess we'll have to see how how it goes because uh i'm 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 interested but i'm not sure how down i really am i guess it kind of depends if they can actually pull it off or not should we move on to our movie of the week yeah yeah so this week in our continuing uh series where we talk about you know, English language remakes of foreign films. Um, we're examining Twelve Monkeys, which is a remake of the French short film Le Jeté. Um And uh, I had seen Le Jeté before in film school, but I did not actually remember that until I started watching it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have seen this before. Um, but I had never seen Twelve Monkeys. I think that's flipped for you, right? You had seen Twelve Monkeys, but never seen Le Jeté. Yeah, I think Twelve Monkeys, like, oddly enough, just happened to be... One of the first movies I saw on DVD. Hmm. I think just because like I was at my friend's house, and his dad had just gotten a new DVD player, Mm -hmm. and that was one of the movies he had for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, So, so let's talk about Leisure Day first, I guess, just because it's the original. Um, It was a really weird short. Like, even by the standards of black and white French short films, it was pretty weird. Like, first of all, it's not really a movie. Um, no. It's like a bunch of still images tied together with a voiceover. Um, and uh, it tells the story of a man who comes from a post-apocalyptic future and is repeatedly sent backwards and forwards in time uh, to kind of try to uh, find ways to fix the, the present. Um and uh, it's kind of a romance that you know that he falls in love with a, a girl in the past, and they have kind of a little whirlwind romance thing. And um, he's also haunted by uh, these recurring visions of someone's death he doesn't know who. And, and then at the end of the of the short, uh, spoiler alert, turns out that it's his own death that he saw as a child. He saw his adult self getting killed uh, in the past. Um, 
a lot of parallels to the remake when I am, I'm sure that we'll talk about the ways that, uh, that that happened. And if you want to watch it, you can go to Hulu. It's on the Criterion Collection on Hulu, and there's also bits and pieces of it floating around YouTube. Um, what, what's your what's your take on this, right? What, 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 did you like this short? Did you not like this short? What were your kind of opinions on it? Did it work for you, I guess? Eh. Eh. Like, I could follow the plot, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I don't think, I think the problem was none of the characters were at all developed, so... They just didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like, for, like, first of all, I didn't understand why this woman fell in love with him at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to tell a romance story with nothing but, but uh, yeah. omniscient voiceover and still black and white photographs. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I... I, I think the, the uh, like, third-person omniscient narrator style would sort of detracted from uh, the immersion. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I mean, I, I kind of disagree. I think that this worked, for, this worked for me, and it actually worked a lot better than 12 Monkeys did, which I did not particularly like this movie. Um, and I think that, if nothing else, the original, the, the short film is, um, uh, it, it has a very uh, confident style that it's shooting for and it hits that perfectly so it's i can't remember watching another thing that felt like that ever you know where um the 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 narrator is so calm and and he he seems to know everything and you get these uh very kind of deliberately paced photographs um and I don't know. I just I I quite liked it, and I not and uh, I liked it when I first saw it. I, I remember, and I liked it this time, uh, rewatching it, kind of uh, getting taken piece by piece through this through this thing, and having this story built up over time. And there also is one section of moving fo- images, um, right? That kind of startles you when you're watching, because all of a sudden you've been watching nothing but still pictures and a montage for a while, and then you know. It uh, kind of pops up, and you're like, "Whoa, that's that's weird." Um, but but I quite liked uh, the the tragedy of of the original, and and being closer, you know, the original is about um, kind of a post atomic war future, and the new one is about kind of a post viral future. Um, and the the fears of the original, kind of like with Godzilla, maybe the fears of the original resonated a lot more with me than the fears of the remake did. Yeah, no, not for me anyways. <laughs> well, let's talk about 12 Monkeys a little bit then. Um, this is a real movie. <laughs> this is uh, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, directed by Terry Gilliam. It came out like 1995, maybe? Yeah, sounds about right. Um, and in this movie, Bruce Willis plays the the same character from the uh, the short film, and he's repeatedly sent only backwards in time. Um, right. Yeah, that's not. I didn't. I didn't really care at all for the whole future part of. Yeah, it was a little bit. Uh, a little bit glossed over. They were just kind of like, here, take a uh, super powerful energy here's, reactor thing. Here's a box thing. Yeah, <laughs> it'll fix your problems. <laughs> we have uh, little dots on our heads. Thanks. Um, 
Uh, the movie's definitely much more fleshed out. Uh, there, I don't know. There's something about this movie that I thought was just so... It just felt 90s. Something about, you know, the cinematography, it makes use of a lot of, like, super wide-angle lenses and Dutch angles where everything's canted and stuff like that. Um, and, and it just felt... It felt like Total Recall. It felt like uh, a bunch of, you know, Schwarzenegger movies from the from the early 90s. I, I, there's just something about the way that this movie looks that I really reacted negatively to. Um, and, and Gilliam really, uh, does everything he can to kind of, kind of try to keep you uncomfortable and off balance, which is fine. That's not a bad thing for a filmmaker to do, but I did not particularly enjoy spending the two hours or so, you know, uncomfortable and off balance. So uh, this, this movie was the one that didn't really work for me, but I know you've mentioned to me before, um, that at least in past viewings, you, you quite liked 12 Monkeys. Yeah, I do think when I rewatched it this time, I was a little less impressed with it, but I still, for the most part, enjoyed it. Um, and like you're right, um, they do they work very hard at making, especially I think the post-apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic underground world sort of jarring and uncomfortable. Um, but I thought that atmosphere really worked for what it was supposed to show. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very surreal and like sort of both dilapidated and technologically advanced at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you have this like weird globe of really old shitty CRT monitors Mm -hmm. that show like all of the scientists when like (laughs) Bruce Willis is sitting in that chair instead of them just like talking face to face. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I read that they made a point to only use pre nineteen ninety six technology as the components for these futuristic setups. And you're right that, that I mean that was kind of cool. Um, I think they also used a lot of those same techniques in the the whole mental hospital sequence, um, which is also filmed in this kind of hallucinatory, you know, what's real, what's not kind of way. Um. I liked I liked a lot of the time paradox stuff. You know, I liked that uh, the idea that he's not the only person that's going back to the past, and you know, he he appears in that photograph, um, you know, toward the end of the movie, and suggests that he has been doing this, you know, a, a very large number of times, and and kind of uh, the scientists Im, 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 uh, imprecisely sending him back into the past. I think is kind of a cool way to, to set it all up, but it, I don't know, I just never really, you never really get much of a connection to any of the characters, including the main character, he's he's just kind of reacting to everything that happens to him, he doesn't really ever seem in control of what's going on, and... and That's uh, true, but I mean, like, I don't feel any more connected to the main character from La Jete. No, me neither, but she only had to stick with him for 28 minutes. <laughs> Like okay. I feel like I just got really bored around the like ninety minute mark of this movie, but it's only it was only three quarters of the way over. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, um. One of the problems I I had with the movie was, and as I said with, with La Jete, I just I I don't believe that the the female lead would fall in love with the male lead. Yeah. Like this the, is some sort of like weird like Stockholm syndrome thing. I guess is how I would write it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like they, uh, 
he literally kidnaps her, shoves her in a trunk, you know, uh, assaults her. Like, then he disappears as she's like surrounded by police. And yeah, yeah, I, I also did not buy that at all. And and I wish I actually wish they had had the kind of uh, the the gutsiness to just not make it a romance. Right. Just make it so that she eventually comes around to, you know... To realize uh, that he's right mm-hmm. about but, what he's saying. He's telling the truth about what he's saying. Yeah, but I think the problem is that they wanted so badly to end up at the same place as Lajete with the, you know, him finding his love on the, you know, in the... In, in the, the airport. In the airport. Um, They wanted so badly to kind of circle back around to that iconic ending of that movie that they like kind of shoehorned this love interest in there and it you're right it does not play well at all and to be fair like i feel like even if they didn't even if it wasn't in la Jete, um someone would have wanted like a romance between the two leads yeah you're, you're probably right they would have been like you know what we got to we've got uh, you know an attractive woman attractive man they have to kind of fall in love yeah, yeah, I did quite like Brad Pitt. Um, I thought Brad Pitt did a great job with his mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like his character. I I just no, sorry. I I don't believe that after he was in a mental institution, his dad would then let him run around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in high society like that. I also have a feeling that in the mid '90s or so, when this movie came out. That kind of like violent, violently fanatical, like animal rights uh, uh, stereotype or, or figure was maybe a little bit more prevalent in media. Because, like, you know, yeah. that's the time when like Greenpeace is like blowing things up and there's kind of eco terrorism happening all over the place. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And, and that's really kind of gone away. So, like, now it just seems kind of weird. Like, he's, I'm on his side for a lot of the stuff that he's talking about for, like, all of the animal rights stuff. And it's, but it just seems like I kind of came out of the movie being like, what is this? What does Terry Gilliam have against animal rights activists that he, like, <laughs> makes this guy so crazy and kind of spends a lot of the movie blaming him for basically eradicating humanity? Um, even though it turns out, you know, it wasn't actually. No, but. I did really like, though, that, like, the whole, that red herring at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. That it hasn't really been the, the 12 monkeys all along. Yeah. 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 Um, I, th- I mean, I, I enjoyed it a lot more when I was younger, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's a very dense movie. You think, sorry, so what? It's a dense movie. Like, there's a oh, lot. Oh, dense. There's, like, a lot to unpack. I thought, for some reason, I thought you said dent. dent. And I was like, "What?" It is a dent movie. Um, no, it's it's a dense movie, and there's a lot here. But I I just felt like as I kind of as like layers of the onion like peeled away, somehow I got like less and less interested over time. Kind of talking about this as an adaptation, I think it's interesting because we this is probably going to be the only time that we examine a short adapted into a full length film. Um. And it's just, I, I always think it's interesting how much, you know, kind of stuff you have to add to flesh it out and where you make changes and where you stay the same. I think this is probably going to be the end result that's the least like its source material of all the things that we watch. You think that's fair to say? Uh, probably. 
but at the same I mean at the same time I think they do I think they incorporate a lot of um the most important parts of La Jete mm-hmm. into Twelve Monkeys and in in some ways just because some ways just because they have more time to play around with it they do a better job yeah. but I but I think well to me one of the more important things was I much more like that they set up the ending where Cole gets shot mm-hmm. um, as sort of a an effect like a result of him needing to save the world and then like just the police reacting to this ostensibly crazy guy pulling a gun in the mm-hmm. middle of an airport mm-hmm. rather than the weird device of like in La Jete where they have like one of the like soldiers from his time come back and kill him for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that ending to Cole's story in 12 Monkeys is much cleaner and uh, more thought out. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. I think I just like the tone and the uh, kind of feel of the original short a lot more, even if you're right, it doesn't make kind of... Like, the movie makes better choices in a lot of ways, but I still kind of preferred the short for whatever reason. It's probably just because there's less time for it to dip. (laughs) Probably true. And it also, like, I, I don't know what it is, but this just... I don't know. It feels so 90s. Oh no, you're right it does. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel like an old movie. It doesn't but it's somehow very different than a new movie. And it, everything is it like It feels dated. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah, everything like uh you know, even using the payphones and Yeah, but it's somehow like not about the proper the costumes or anything. It's like no. the way that they shot it. Like it's like very flatly lit. And uh, oh, it looks like Time Cop too. <laughs> like I don't know why. I don't know why. It just it just doesn't look cinematic to me in a way that a lot of for whatever reason movies made between like eighty nine and ninety five like don't look cinematic to me. I do wish you could have seen my face when he ate that spider. Oh, I I remember that scene the, from the first time I saw. It, and so when he first went outside, mm-hmm. I was like, "Is this when he eats the spider? Why did he eat the spider then?" I'm like. <laughs> No, he put it in the jar. Okay, good. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, he eats it. And then when he's in the mental system, I'm like, oh, God, this is when he eats that spider. And mm-hmm. it's so fucking big. It's a huge spider. It looks like it could really hurt you if it bit you. I did like that. It was like um, when like he came back into his present time, he was like, mm-hmm. I collected a specimen, but didn't have anywhere to put it, so I <laughs> ate it. And they, the scientists are like, <laughs> "What are we supposed to do?" Okay, with it? <laughs> like, what are we entrusting our future to? Like this crazy man who just eats spiders. So overall, you were unimpressed. Yeah, I feel like I mean, I didn't love either of them. It wasn't kind of like I feel like the movies we've been watching recently have been really quality movies. So I really liked uh, Gojira and uh, Godzilla, and I really liked uh, both Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. Uh, and here, kind of like, kind of both of them, I could just kind of take or leave. But I think the I like the short a little bit better on the whole. Um, next time we're watching Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Tortilla Soup. So Eat, Drink, Man, Woman is Ang Lee's first feature film. 
and Tortilla Soup is a remake of it. Um, and I have not that seen, I think no one heard of. Yes, I've not seen either of these movies, so I'm intrigued to see how this is going to go. For some reason, I feel like this is kind of going to be the the uh, the lake house of this series. Although I feel like perhaps unlike the lake house, none of our uh, none of our audience will actually uh, watch either of the movies and will be really confused about why we're talking about it. Very possible, but I think Eat Drink Man Woman is like a legitimately good and probably important film yeah me too and from there we move into uh movies that people really should have seen at least one of and will probably be pretty interested to hear us talk about uh we have the ring after that and the and infernal affairs and the departed yeah uh, i think if if anything was and it was it was our last pick i think for our lineup if anything was out sort of out of place it was our 12 monkeys la jete pick yeah because la jete not a not a feature film yeah yeah and I mean, how well known? Like, I guess you watch it in film school, but how well known is it in film studies circles? Uh, I would say pretty well known. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched it in film school. I don't know. It, it, I think it, it's more known. It's one of these movies, like kind of like Metropolis, maybe, where uh, it's like more known for its influence than like people who have actually seen it. I so, see. You, you know. Okay. People who watch like a post-apocalyptic movie like The Road or something are like, oh, yes, this is harkens back to Le Jete. And like, maybe they've never actually seen it, but, you know, they say it <laughs> sounds smart. Um, Metropolis is a, a sci-fi uh, black and white film from the 20s that kind of has a lot of imagery that seems to have inspired sci-fi movies down like through the eons. But, um, you know, I think the actual number of people who have actually watched Fritz Lang's Metropolis is far lower than the number of people who talk about its influence so <laughs> you know um, we'll have to see uh, it, it's, I, I, I think that it is uh, probably pretty influential among film buffs and nothing influential outside of that <laughs> okay This is, like, pretty inconsequential, but I just thought it was weird that, like, um, I really liked seeing all of those, uh, Thor's buddies fight, because they all have, like, very different fighting styles. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Zachary Levy's character, who, ever, like, I could barely tell that was Zachary Levy, first of all. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, he had, like, that sort of rapier, and he was, like, the... Oh, Yeah. Like yeah. a wisecracking, you know, sarcastic, quippy sort of person. Mm-hmm. But then I just I thought it was weird that they had the the Asian guy who's just like oh, yeah, he just got stranded on his own planet. Like you don't get to help. Like I I, I just don't understand really why. Yeah, <laughs> it just seemed well. We don't want you in the movie, so. <laughs>
<laughs> we don't have room for you. You get to go over here. <laughs> it's pretty inconsequential, but it was just, it was really weird. Like, I thought maybe it would come back to play later. Like, he would maybe, he and his people would, I don't know, help out Asgard, mm-hmm. fight some of those dark elves or something. <laughs> But then I was just like, nope. He's just there. There's like one shot of him looking at the sky all concerned. That's all you get. 